like Christian mystics are, are just like mystics of the East, you know, in so many ways. And it's and, and there's not there's not like the shame of like you can't learn from other traditions. There's there's just not any of that. Hello and welcome to Methods, an exploration and guided prayer and meditation. Today we're talking with Clint Sabom. Clint is a creative director of Contemplative Light and the writer of the book Preparation for Great Light. His areas of knowledge are Christian mysticism, Advaita Vedanta, Buddhism, shamanism, neurolinguistic programming, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychoanalytic models, brain spotting, integral theory, body therapy, sound healing, Reiki, and hypnosis. All right, Clint, welcome to Methods. Glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. If you could just tell everyone a little bit about your background and what brought you to the contemplative path you're on. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, you know, when I was 21, I out of, out of high school, I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, a small liberal arts school. And I guess it was probably my junior year there. Um, I guess being away from home, I'd grown up in Houston, Texas, and being away from home, I guess I just kind of started to process a whole lot of things and started to kind of get in touch with my feelings deeper. And I remember somewhere around the end of sophomore year, at Vassar, I started having all these um, emotions come up. I think there was just a lot of anger and um, sadness, and I was kind of just feeling alive as if I'd kind of been numb or not completely aware of um, kinesthetics and feelings in my body. And then that summer after sophomore year, I went backpacking through Europe for about six weeks and and then something about being over there stirred up a lot in me and i went back to vassar in the fall that would have been like fall of 1997 and it was just kind of like my heart all of a sudden just started opening up inside and my my insides almost felt like jello in a way like energy was just starting to expand out and i think i'd always had a kind of metaphysical mind and um a creative and intuitive personality but i'd never really you know knew exactly what mysticism was i think i'd read a couple of things and I felt like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I kind of get these concepts. And, and then fall of junior year, it just all started opening up and, and really just, I, I kind of went into a practice of going to my dorm room and just kind of letting my energy go and letting things open up just almost figuring it out on my own and or trying to and um eventually just just 
things opened so wide that the wideness of opening up um, and just kind of falling in is almost like I fell into a to like a hole that was was there that I didn't even know was there, and it really just overtook me. And so I had a problem, like Ken Wilber calls it, like um, too much state, too little structure. It's almost like when your um, mystical development gets ahead of your psychological development, where mm-hmm. your progression in consciousness gets ahead of, um, you know, your progression of ego development. And mm-hmm. so I ended up having kind of this combination of a breakdown and a breakthrough at the same time. Hmm. And, and then so ever since then, I guess it's, it's just kind of been a path for me. Um, and I've explored all different kinds of um, mysticism and spiritual paths. And eventually I wanted to reconnect with Christianity because that, that was what I grew up as, grew up in the Episcopal Church. So I really wanted to reconnect with that. So I felt a little like empty inside, you know, exploring all these different things like shamanism and Buddhism and, and Hinduism. And I'd never really completely reconnected with the Christian mystical branch. Mm-hmm. I went to live at a silent monastery for a while. And I considered becoming a monk, but I didn't. But the monastery was a good experience because it kind of re, it was kind of a homecoming, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, was a of, it was a way of um, bringing this kind of experiential mysticism and anchoring it in the tradition I'd grown up in. But I'd grown up in it not really having been told or, you know, nurtured on a mystical path, but I kind of, found the mystical path that had always been there in my tradition. And I think there was something about like that sense of homecoming that was, that was very reassuring for me. You know, I didn't feel like the black sheep just kind of exploring all these weird things. I was, I was actually still within the bounds of Christianity and the, and what I'd grown up in. Yeah. You're, you're speaking directly to me because i have uh quite the similar story and and that's really the the purpose of this this whole podcast is to uh engage that experiential dimension of faith through all sorts of traditions and practices but also for people who grew up in the western world such as i did to to tie it back to uh christianity in a way that is kind of the the coming home of the the hero's journey you know seeing home again uh for the fir- uh for the first time and and so i i'm really interested in how the dynamic exists between the christian mystics and and other forms of faith um and so i've i've said it before many times but like you i was i was both i was both overjoyed but also frustrated that there was so much in the Christian tradition that I'd been seeking that I never knew was there. And the, the meditative and contemplative practices, the tools for transformation all seemed to have been 
almost hidden from me, not intentionally, but unintentionally in my upbringing in, in an uh, evangelical setting. And so many people identify as Christians today while completely missing all the, the richness that leads to that transformation and, and heals suffering. So, the work that you do with contemplative light and, uh, and all that is, is very inspiring and, and important. Um, so what fascinates you about the Christian mystics and, and why do you think it's important to learn about them? Well, I mean, I think it kind of brings back the power of God and, you know, not just as something you say or, you say you believe in or you think is true theoretically, but something you feel, you know, something you live. I, I think that was what hit me, you know, back during my breakdown and breakthrough at Vassar about mysticism. It was kind of like, I, I remember when everything started opening up for me, I remember thinking, oh, this is the ecstatic trance of the saints. This is prayer. This is consecration. This is what they mean. You know, like all those things became real for me. Like I could almost touch them in the room. You know, they weren't like ideas or concepts or something to write about. I was like, you know, I was like touching it. I was swimming in it, mm. and 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 I I've been in that state for a while. Like I mean, I guess I've been in the experiential um, dimension of spirituality for long enough that I forget that other people don't don't think about them in the same way. Like they're, they're like I think other people are talking about them almost theoretically in in a way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I feel the same way, and and I I do the same thing. I forget that just because uh, people use the language doesn't mean that they're that they're tasting, and and so like for me, like I like I I love Indian food. Like I love uh, curry and uh, garam masala and, and all those different spices and, and everything. And so sometimes like I hear folks talk about, uh, you know, like theology or scripture or, or other things. And it's, and it's almost like they're talking about curry and they're like, oh, you know, this curry is so great, blah, blah, blah. But like talking about it and then tasting those spices are, two completely different things like talking about the, the you know the items and the ingredients on the menu are not tasting them so i i really like how like the the language that you use around it is is like a less abstract and more visceral kind of way to talk about it yeah yeah exactly that's a, yeah that's a well well done with that metaphor of food I think that's exactly what it's like. And the other thing that occurred to me about the Christian mystics and and probably would apply to anybody that, you know, is regularly, um, you know, doing these practices and following a podcast like this and, and, and definitely apply to different contemplative monks 
and monasteries all over the world right now is that I find that they're very, they're a lot more similar to mystics, other traditions really than to mystic, than to non-mystics of their own religion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're, they're real similar to each other. And I think I had compartmentalized for a while as if like, oh, okay, so there's real deep mysticism in the East. And, you know, the Buddhists and the Hindus, they'll go real deep in mysticism. But in Christianity, not so much. They've kind of got to be careful about being, you know, theologically sound and not heretical and following the rules of the church. I, like, I had all these preconceptions, but they've all since been blown. Like, like Christian mystics are, are just like mystics of the East, you know, in so many ways. And, it's, and, and there's, not, there's not like the shame of like, you can't learn from other traditions. There's, there's just not any of that. And moreover, there's been a whole history and there's been tons of historical figures that have really gone deep and have really written about it. And um, some of them got canonized as saints. Some of them, you know, made it to kind of blessed. Um, And then some of them, I guess, didn't really have any distinction. But um, there's just a real rich tradition and a rich body of literature from um, from mystics writing within the Christian tradition. So let me ask you this. Do you have, one, do you have a favorite uh, Christian mystic? And second is, do you, who do you think is the most underrepresented or underrated of the Christian mystics? Well, I'd answer it differently for both questions. That most underrated one, I kind of come to believe that Bernadette Roberts does not get enough press. Um, and I say that basically because for a while, I, you know, we were writing a lot about Evelyn Underhill and I was writing about Evelyn Underhill, who, you know, was, was in the early 20th century and was really um, one of the first to write this well-documented and well-thought-out uh, description of the stages of the mystical journey. You know, traditionally, the stages were purgation, illumination, and divine union. Mm-hmm. Uh, Evelyn Underhill really expanded that in her book, Mysticism, and she used accounts from all the different mystics to kind of describe their experience. Um, of God and experience of the mystical path at different parts along the way. But, you know, once we started writing about that a lot at Contemplative Flight, we'd always have, like, commenters write in and be like, you're, you know, all this talk about Evelyn Underhill, no one talks about Bernadette Roberts and all these, you know, people um, kind of speaking up on behalf of Bernadette Roberts. So I, I kind of think maybe she is, she is the most underrated because of living mystics, you know, Roar has gotten so much uh, popularity and, and Thomas Keating um, 
you know, before he passed was, was so popular and so well known. And then of course, Thomas Merton was like, uh, you know, I guess the Elvis of Christian mysticism. And then everybody <laughs> just goes back to him and like only listens to him, you know, it's like, I've got all his out. Al- I've got all of Merton's albums. All I listen to is, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how it's like, but Bernadette Roberts just kind of slipped under the radar. Hmm. Yeah. I guess that's how I'd answer that one. So, so is she also your favorite or do you have a, like a one that you reference the most or that you feel that your particular experience is, is most similar to? Oh yeah. My, my favorite is Evelyn Underhill. I, but I mean, you know, I think that the one that inspires the Roberts comments because Evelyn Underhill, I stumbled across right, you know, right as all this was happening. I stumbled across her book kind of serendipitously Mm. and asked her library and I just started reading it. And there was one, I don't think it was mysticism. It was a different book. And there was some thing where she was describing the process and she was using the phrase introversion. You know, it's this introversion. And, and then, and then that, that the way she described it actually started happening to me. And I was just kind of feeling this light enter my body and, and kind of go down, you know, right through the, right through the center of my chest, I guess, and, you know, along across the spine, I guess they would probably call it, you know, Kundalini or the awakening of the Kundalini yoga traditions. But um, at the time, I wasn't familiar with that word, but I had been familiar with the way uh, Underhill had described it. And the very thing she described, like, started happening to me, like, you know, a day after I stumbled on the book reading it. And I, I wasn't in, it was an accident. I stumbled on her book, too. I, I think I was writing a report on something, like, totally unrelated, you know, and just kind of got wandering into a different um, section of the library or, you know, just a different shelf. And all of a sudden I was like picking up her book and reading it. So, hmm. so the personal connection there as well as, as well as obviously appreciating what, um, all she did. So she, she seems to have found you. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. She found me. I didn't really find her. I, I, I think like I had a blog and, and, and Mark Thomas Shaw had a blog and I just was inspired to reach out and talk to him. And then, so we started talking and then we just decided to, to combine forces. And then, um, Kim Holman had a web page and a good Facebook page. And then we talked to her and three of us just kind of joined forces. On. Yeah. We joined forces and we felt like we all kind of got along well and, it was like a good kind of energetic, natural, organic match. You know, maybe we felt like it was grace or we felt comfortable with each other. And, mm. and so, um, that's when we started. That was probably early 2017. So we've been doing it for a few years. We admittedly, we, we had a little, we were a little slow in 2019. We didn't do quite as much, but now we're kind of having a, you know, second wave or, 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 or just, a wave of back into it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys have a selection of, of courses now that you offer. Um, 
and and I've done a lot of those courses myself, and they were really helpful to me in in wading through the absolute oceans of information regarding the the Christian mystics and spiritual practices and um so what all courses are you offering right now we have a i guess our flagship class is the class on the christian mystics and we cover 20 different christian mystics and their teachings and their works and their biographies and then we have video you know extra videos in that course too about their significance And then we have a course on contemplative practices and perspectives. And then in that, in that class, we go through the different practices, kind of, kind of like probably some of your episodes here on this podcast, we go through, um, Lectio Divina and, uh, Christian meditation and centering prayer and, um, you know, different, different contemplative practices. And then we also add um, perspectives at the end, which is covering a whole lot of integral theory and um, understanding uh, Christian mysticism in the context of Ken Wilber's work, which is which in part overlaps with what Evelyn Underhill did as well. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses her as an example. And then we have some classes that are shorter that. Um, Kelly Boyer Sager, a friend of ours, does, and she has one about like writing a, your own devotional book and a class about uh, writing as a spiritual practice. And um, she has some good, you know, shorter kind of mini courses um, that are like extremely inexpensive mm-hmm. uh, that that are really well done. And, and those are most of those are part of something she's done at some point as a workshop. Mm-hmm. You know, at a church or you know a, an event you know i think she does a lot of workshops and that's just kind of her material from the workshop so you kind of get the online workshop yeah for a, a lot less of a price i'm sure yeah 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 totally totally so that's a, a ton of good stuff and i'd love to be able to share with meth with methods listeners um how to get that stuff. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the uh, contemplative light website where folks can access all that great information. And, and you said that you would be so kind as to give our listeners a discount on that. So um, if everyone enters uh, all caps methods, um, they can get a discount on those courses. So that's fantastic. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's that's right. I'll I'll just give a fifty percent discount. So just use the use the coupon code uh, methods in all caps when you when you get a course. So if you kind of click on the course to like enroll now, you should come to a screen um, where you enter your information, and there'll be a little button for like a coupon code. Or a gift code, I think it'll say either gift code or coupon code, and then you just enter. You click on that, and then you just enter methods and all apps, and it should just automatically cut the price in half. That's a, a huge gift um, for our listeners. And so, bringing it back to experience, too, I, I know you've done 
like you said, lessons on the Jesus prayer and, and Christian meditation. And uh, I'm not sure if there was a centering prayer one, but those are kind of like the the core of Christian contemplative practices, like in contemporary circles. And I even saw something about a type of uh, integral Jesus prayer that's related to, to Ken Wilber's work. So, w- what's that about? Yeah, yeah. So, I was, I was, Tying in the Jesus prayer to um, integral theory, and because I think I kind of experienced it in a way, and it's a way of kind of walking through, um, you know, different quadrants and different lenses of um, Wilbur's work. But um, in in short, it's a way of making the Jesus prayer not only an individual prayer, but also kind of a collective. Prayer. You know, you kind of have our Father who art in heaven, and it's this kind of sense of collective. Um, the Jesus prayer has kind of traditionally been Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, mm-hmm. and um, which is just me, one person, an individual. And so the integral Jesus prayer kind of, you know, works with the Jesus prayer to. Um, you know, make it a collective thing that can be a prayer for all the body of Christ, you know, and, and, and all people and all the earth, uh, rather, rather, you know, in additionally to, to just being an individual, personal, private prayer. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's different. It's different ways to think about it. It's kind of like the practice Tonglen and, and Buddhism, you know, where you're kind of breathing in. The world suffering and breathing out passion for mm. uh, different exercises that I read, like Pima Chodron talk about in, in Buddhist practice, where you're kind of um, praying or meditating on on all people, you know, and the liberation of all beings, and um, by doing that, it kind of helps yourself and kind of gets you out of self absorption because i kind of think in the contemplative life sometimes we can we can get a little kind of lost in our own process and lost in our own head and sometimes just opening it back up to the collective and, and praying for everyone um and and meditating on on the whole world and the whole planet is kind of a way to to break us out of self-absorption and and also just put a lot of good vibes out in the universe too obviously yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, a a razor wire that contemplatives seem to walk on is is how to you know balance contemplation and action. Um, but so is is that method of the integral Jesus prayer is that your primary um, method of practice, or do you have something that you that you normally do on like a daily basis? Or yeah, I do, I do. It's not going to sound very. Um, Christian or even very rooted in any tradition, but I, I've basically been doing the same practice for years, and it's just sitting and breathing and counting breaths. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I basically light candles on my altar, I light some incense, and then, you know, I get in a comfortable position. I kind of have it set up where, you know, um, in my meditation room, you know, where I go to meditate. In the spot I sit in, and then um, I basically breathe, breathe in and out, and that's one. Breathe in and out, two, 
And I usually do a couple of rounds and I do like maybe 200 breaths in a round. So yeah, I sit and breathe and count breaths and then I count one to 200. Hmm. That's a round. And then maybe I'll take a break or, you know, go about my day and then later I'll do another round. 200. So <laughs> that's my, that's my daily practice. I mean, other, and, and I mean, additionally, um, I also do the practice of Julia Cameron's morning pages where you just write three pages and the goal is to just keep writing. You can write anything. It's just personal content. Wilbur talks about this too. He probably gets it. Julia Cameron. I mean, I, well, I mean, nobody probably gets it from anybody, you know, people, you know started doing it at some point. But yeah. it's a good way to just kind of clear out emotions and thoughts and kind of um, empty everything inside and also kind of get flow going. So, yeah, I write, I write three pages and it's just junk, you know. It's just like here I'm writing in these pages. I don't know what to write. It's a another day i'm not really sure what i'm gonna you know and and then just on and on like that you mm -hmm. know whatever you want and so i do those three pages there and so i do yeah i do the morning pages and then i do the breathing meditation and then then i'll usually pray too, like a spoken prayer mm -hmm. kind of breaks it up and kind of breaks up the rhythm and, you know do you find that when you when you write the the morning pages do you ever write something down and then look at it as as almost something foreign like i didn't know that i thought that oh yeah yeah totally all the time all the time that that stuff like just kind of um you know starts percolating and and but i think i've gotten so used to it now at this point that it's just like nothing's really nothing's really a surprise like the whole universe is 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 on the table like any anything that could be possibly thought or felt is is i've given myself permission to go there basically mm -hmm. you know that's kind of what happens it's i guess it's kind of like a psychological emotional versatility that develops where you just basically get comfortable expressing the full range of any sort of thoughts or feelings yeah, it, it also makes me think of like almost like a Jungian kind of like shadow work because you're you're giving voice to the to the unconscious and you know anything you give voice to uh has less power to control you. So just getting that stuff out on there out on paper is seems to be a beneficial way or a cathartic way of letting the things out that you've repressed. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. That's exactly what it is. It's it's shadow work, and it's making all the unconscious conscious, and and getting everything out. Yeah. yeah. I know you've also spoken about the negative visualization of the Stoics, and I seem to do that involuntarily. Um, <laughs> my mind often goes to like worst case scenario, um, but I've I've seen similar things in Buddhist thought or even in the the Philokalia or Thomas Merton and it seems to to resonate with those themes of non-attachment of apatheia of dispassion equanimity 
it's like focusing on your on your death or focusing on yourself as a corpse or the things that you're afraid of actually creating the scenario in your head and walking yourself through it almost like a like a exposure technique like a clinical psychology um like a a re i forget what it's called re-exposure um, yeah 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 exposure therapy or flooding is another one um yeah re-experiencing um re-experiencing traumatic situations yeah i mean they'll take soldiers that are coming back from war and and have them basically kind of relive and re-experience it and i mean yeah it's definitely that and it's like in in anxiety therapy because you know you kind of start getting nervous and then you just start asking yourself well what if okay well what if that happens okay and then what then and then what then and then you follow it through and then it's you know, then it's not that bad, you know? So a lot of times anxiety is just getting afraid of something, but you're not exactly sure of what that something is. So I guess if you just look something in the eye, then it has less power. I tell you, though, there's some really bad scenarios in this world that you could come up with, though. Yeah, so how do you how do you differentiate between, you know, uh re-exposing yourself or like walking through your anxiety and like re-traumatizing yourself? Like how do you make sure that you're not, you know, just tormenting yourself and creating more trauma by thinking about what could go wrong? Uh how how do you know that you're doing the the beneficial part of the that practice? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think you have to kind of know like what the lesson is in your own trauma or just your own anxiety or what your or your own depression. I think there's usually themes that you know we all have and there's usually core beliefs we all have and of core patterns that you think, you know, that that people keep getting stuck in. So it's it's kind of a way of of, of knowing what yours are and having a sense that things are different now than they were then. If you're, if you're reliving, that's for reliving past trauma, um, you know, but if, if you're experienced, if you're imagining worst case scenarios, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, knowing, knowing why you may fear that, you know, it's kind of like I could, I, you know, I could end up, you know, being afraid of, you know, um, my friend's going to get themselves killed because he's so reckless or, or, or what, whatever it is, I, I could get afraid of that and I could imagine the worst case scenario. But like underneath that, it's like, oh, wait, I may be afraid of that because I have some psychological issue about worrying about people because of x y and z or something that may not be the best example but there's usually themes mm-hmm. that we deal with so i think i think it's definitely definitely important that you know that you're in a good place sometimes when you do it too and you realize okay well it doesn't really have to to get there because you know or you know, things are different now than they were then. I mean, that's kind of the same thing with soldiers re-experiencing past trauma. It's kind of like they only re-experience it 
once they're out of it and they're in a safe place and you know it's not going to happen again you know it's and it's probably not a good idea to re-experience it if you still got to go back for another round of, you know another tour or something like once you're out completely then you re-experience it what you know that you know you're not you know you're not going to have to go back there it's got to be different it's got to be different now so mm. So yeah, I guess it's just it's it's just a level of self awareness. Yeah, I guess it's 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 different for for every person as far as if they're if they're able to dissociate enough in a healthy way to to examine how they they feel about something and and not be controlled by the situation. I think it for me personally, it's hard to to think about those fears without letting the fears run away with you, you know, in a, in a certain way, because, you know, once you, once you start going down the road of, well, what could happen then? What could happen then? It can get pretty dark, pretty quick. And, uh, and as, as long as you know that, that that's all mind, then it's one thing. And you can, you can realize that that's just the mind putting itself in the future or the past rather than, the, the present um, but if you don't know that then then leading yourself through all those flights of of terror can be a pretty scary thing yeah i think you've got to keep a rational part of your head um mind alive you know it's kind of like they do in um dialectical behavior therapy you know you you know you have an emotional part and then you have a rational part too so it's kind of like the emotional part of you is, is imagining the worst case scenario, but the rational part kind of needs to know, okay, well, the odds, the odds are against that. I mean, like when you imagine the worst case scenario, are, are you a, I mean, do you really think it's possible that that's going to happen? Or is it just like an emotional fear and, and you're able to see that like, okay, the odds are highly against that that's actually going to go that way. Yeah, it's almost like a an emotional I think it it seems like an emotional addiction to the trauma in a way because it's like a what if and then that that little hit of anxiety or cortisol or fear or whatever spikes in the system when you think what if and examining like how how you would react to it it almost it almost is is addictive in a way and so i it makes me wonder if if that's connected to the reason why some people are are kind of addicted to their their trauma and and re-traumatize themselves because of the almost like the hit they get off of it yeah yeah i think i think that happens and i i think but i think it's kind of a craving to release it too like i i think like wanting to go back there is, and wanting to re-experience it is kind of like be, because you want to release it you want to work through it you want to work or um you want to work something out at the same time i've heard i've heard some say that it's actually better to just see that as just like a habit if that makes sense like it's just a habit of the nervous system mm-hmm. it, how to break the habit of the nervous system. Well, Clint, I talked to you forever, but I want to be respectful of your time. So can you tell everyone where they can go to engage with your work? 
Sure. So we're at contemplativelight.org. And then you can also follow us um, on Facebook at Contemplative Light. And then the podcast, the Contemplative Light podcast is, is on iTunes and all the major channels. And it's also on our website. And you can just um, tune into that. But in the meantime, I hope everybody can enjoy the class. Yeah, absolutely. I'll put all those links below in the show notes. All right, everyone, please click the link in the next episode to be led through a guided meditation with Clint Sabom.